This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. What's likely the most dangerous storm people in our area have ever seen now slamming full throttle into New Jersey. On October 29th, 2012, Hurricane Sandy made landfall around New York City. And Sandy absolutely pounding seaside heights, a storm badly damaging homes and buildings as it continues to intensify. Meanwhile, the winds in Manhattan toppling a crane leading The storm's span was massive, roughly 1,000 miles in diameter. Homes were washed away, subway systems were flooded, power was out, and fires raged throughout neighborhoods. Life on the eastern seaboard came to a standstill. Superstorm Sandy followed Katrina and Andrew, and there was Harvey and Irma and Michael. Rising seas, king tides, and hurricanes repeatedly threatened coastal cities. But here's the thing. Since Sandy, 345,000 people have moved into New York City. And in Miami, another city under constant barrage from storms and water, 2 million additional residents have moved there since Hurricane Andrew. We're not running away from the problem. We're running to it. So what do we do? How do we build our cities to be more resilient? Because for a lot of us, right by the water is where we want to be. From this old house, this is Clear Story, your home in a new light. I'm Kevin O'Connor. 40% of the world's population lives along a coast. Worldwide, that's about 2.4 billion people. Here in the U.S., it's about 127 million people. And the number is growing fast. Coastal cities are also the hub of the global economy. So there's a lot at stake. The threats are on multiple levels. Anthony Wood is an architect and the executive director of the Council on Tall Buildings and Urban Habitat. Even before we get into climate change and the threats from, you know, increasing natural disasters, the most basic threats are founded in massive population growth and urbanization. There's one statistic which I still find you know, completely shocking every time I think about it. It's, it's that there are a million people urbanizing on this planet every week. That means we need to build the equivalent of a Chicago every month somewhere on the planet. It's staggering. You know, cities are getting bigger, the pressure on cities, the pressure on infrastructure to support that inhabitation. And as more people move into harm's way, the damage caused by storms and floods will be more disastrous and costly. Last year, global damage due to extreme weather cost $210 billion. And the six most economically destructive storms in 2020 were right here in the United States. Every city of the world, 99.9% of the infrastructure exists at the ground plane, at just above or just below. And But by infrastructure, please 
you know, don't get me wrong, I'm not just talking power and sewage and lighting and water, I'm talking social infrastructure, those parks and sidewalks and schools and shops that all exists at the ground plan. We've all seen it, maybe you've lived it. A community underwater for days or weeks following a storm. Transportation, businesses, housing, all compromised. Anthony says it's time to rethink our urban infrastructure. It's ridiculous that we're now seeing, I mean, we're building a skyscraper in in the deserts of Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, that will be more than one kilometer high. One kilometer, you think about that, yeah? Now, every time the people in that tower want a cigarette or a pizza, they've all got to come down to the ground floor, yeah? We need to, if we're serious about density and and bringing these projects into great heights, then we need to bring the horizontal. We need to start to connect them and, and, and really create urban habitat. I'm not just talking circulation here. I'm talking replicate the ground plane at height. What does that look like? What, what are you talking about? I mean, are you talking about a park up on a balcony or are you talking about a walkway or a road between the 30th story of two buildings? Here's the thing, Kevin. You think about a city. What makes up a city? Buildings make up a city, but but it's about functions. It, it, it's about office and residential homes, but it's also about schools and shops and doctor's surgeries and sidewalks and parks and rivers and all this stuff. And yet, in any city, the minute that we go vertical, we only go office, residential, hotel, or some combination of those three. Yeah? We don't replicate the cities. It's about projects such as Marina Bay Sands in Singapore. It's a complex of three hotel towers. Their roofs are connected with an urban park, which connects between the roofs and sails over the buildings either side. So it is about circulation, but it's not just about circulation. It's about replication of facilities. Marina Bay Sands in Singapore looks like three bowed towers connected at the top by a massive surfboard. And on the roof, there's an infinity pool, a two and a half acre park, and a promenade that can hold 10,000 people. When we push it up, doesn't it become prohibitive? I mean, I think about building high as expensive, and then I think about complexity up high as even more expensive. Like, isn't it harder to build a park at 60 stories than it is to build a park on the ground? Well, absolutely, but the difficulty is not what you think it is. It's not a technical difficulty because it's been done. I mean, for example, you take a place like Hong Kong, you can walk for several square miles um, without touching the ground in the central district of Hong Kong on a public skybridge network through private buildings. If all the infrastructure, 99.9%, is down at the ground level, and you couple that with mass urbanization and the effects of rising sea levels. Is all of that infrastructure at risk? And is there a reason to push it up in the air for resiliency reasons alone? Well, I would argue that there are resiliency benefits, and I'll tell you why. It's, 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 it's the word redundancy. Redundancy basically means multiple routings of infrastructure so that if one fails, another one can kick in. And really what I'm talking about is a total three-dimensional connected verticality. Not only allows people uh, you know, to get out if a certain horizon in the building is compromised, it allows that redundancy of water routing, of power routing. 
you know, to different parts of the building. So I would argue that bringing some of the infrastructure um, and particularly the kind of physical infrastructure we talk about, power, water, all these things, at different levels improves the resiliency of a building. Anthony says another problem is that the way we've built our cities doesn't reflect their environments. I'm the CEO of the Council on Tall Buildings and Urban Habitat. And when I start with this statement that 99% of tall buildings are crap, it usually confuses and shocks a few people. The 1% that are absolutely fantastic are those that relate to their setting, that are not all glass towers. Is that a solution? If we are inland and it's dry, we can build one way. If we are coastal, we are backed up to the bay or the sound, we have to go up and the infrastructure has to be protected up as well. Absolutely. I believe that that buildings need to have responsibilities to the city and society as a whole. And I'll just give you one example. There's a project in Tokyo, NBF Tower, and it won our innovation award for a device called the Bioskin. The Bioskin works like this. Rainwater is collected and circulated through porous ceramic pipes that line the surface of the building. And when sunlight hits the pipes, the water evaporates. The net effect of that is the external air temperature around the building can be four to five degrees cooler on any given day than the building next door. Now, if all buildings did this, that would help to counter the urban heat island effect. That, you know, that had a, a marginal benefit for the building itself in terms of drawing in, you know, perhaps cooler air. But the but the responsibility was really the thing that it did was for the benefit of the city, not the developer, not even necessarily the occupants of the building itself. It was a much bigger responsibility. Now, this bioskin can reduce the temperature in and around a building. But frankly, the impact is still relatively small. We have not made anywhere near the tough choices that we need to as a response to climate change and a need for more sustainable inhabitation on this planet. We've taken a few little baby steps, and I'll tell you why, because it's still a matter of choice. We're still reliant on fossil fuels. It's down to a matter of choice. You, I, others can decide whether to turn off the light, turn on the light, to consume, to not consume, because it's a matter of choice. The things that I've described at the moment in terms of three-dimensional uh, horizontal and vertical connected infrastructure and societal rich um, vision for the future, that might seem completely utopian at the moment for many cities around the world. It's like, well, you know what? New York's been there for 150 years. London's been there for several hundred. Cairo's been there for several thousand. Is that ever really going to happen? Even if there are another half a million people coming into the city, is that ever going to happen? Lots of people are choosing to live in coastal communities, regardless of the threats. So how do you make them more resilient? So, you know, Miami, you learn that you live with where you are in your geography. That's after the break. Nearly 1,000 people move to Florida every day, and nearly half of those new residents land in South Florida. That's according to a new real estate report by ISG World. And housing prices in Miami reflect that population boom. 
Real estate prices for luxury homes are up 42% this year. But isn't Miami one of those coastal cities hammered by storms and rising sea levels? Jim Murley is the chief resilience officer for Miami-Dade County. You know, we are a peninsula surrounded by water, uh, subtropical. Uh, we'll always be in the path of hurricanes. Every season we know that a hurricane could impact us directly or indirectly and have that effect. It's part of living here. Jim's job is to assess threats to this part of Florida and to figure out how to prepare and recover from serious weather events. Well, this is the interesting thing about South Florida. When people first came to the lower part of the peninsula, south of Lake Okeechobee, it was an almost uninhabitable place. It was swamp, mosquitoes, hot weather. So we're really here because we've been managing water the whole time. In 1992, Hurricane Andrew leveled parts of Miami-Dade County. 250,000 residents were left homeless, and 100,000 people moved out of the area for good. A lot was learned from that storm. Building codes were strengthened, and they served as a model for other states across the country. Drainage systems were improved, and backup generators were installed. But now... Researchers are predicting that sea levels in Miami will rise by two feet or more by 2060. And that means more flooding and more damage. Jim says local governments are taking action. If you go to Miami Beach, where they've been a leader in doing this, you'll see where the roads have risen up from their previous position. What does that look like, though, in Miami Beach? When you say a street has been raised up in its normal course of paving, is it literally up next to a lower sidewalk? The whole sidewalk came up. If you go to Sunset Harbor, where some of the initial work happened in Miami Beach, the patio out to the Italian restaurant is about three or four feet below the street level. And, you know, the people are walking by. There's a sidewalk that came with this, you know, as the street came up. And the owner now has a way of that'll be pumped dry if there's rain. Now, there is no 100% guarantee. If we get a, a heavy rain downpour... Uh, you're going to still have flooding. But the extent and timing of how long the water will be there will be dramatically changed by the change in conditions. The Florida legislature just passed a $600 million resiliency grant to combat rising seas. And there's a lot to do, like raising road heights, upgrading water treatment plants, and protecting shipping ports. We believe that there'll be a need to raise the land in certain areas, the canal system is now part of our landscape. It allows the water to exit when it's drained, and it's also the pathway for the storm flood when it comes ashore. We're elevating structures. We're floodproofing structures. We realize that some places were built in low areas that are going to flood under almost any circumstances. So we're starting to experiment with a willing seller program to buy some people out. The structures that you raise, when you say structures, are you talking buildings? Are you pushing houses up onto pylons? Are you pushing apartment buildings above certain levels? Or are you talking something else? Sometimes it's a better investment to just tear down the structure and build something new. Mm -hmm. It's going to have the, these protections built into them. We're probably known for our high-rise condominiums and office buildings. You'll see them. Their architectural design is such that the parking pedestal, it's called, is on the ground. So you could have three or four stories of parking 
before the, the apartments actually start. So while there's exposure to the building in terms of whatever's on those first levels, the high level value of the building is really already elevated. According to a report by the Urban Land Institute, by 2040, flooding could wipe out $3 billion of Miami's property. And by 2070, well, it's much worse. Property value losses could top $23 billion. By your own predictions, your models say that the storms will probably get more intense, yet people are still moving in. It doesn't seem to phase people. Are they unaware or are they indifferent or are they just like, we can handle this problem, we're not worried about it? People love to be near the water. They really do. They just love to be near the water. If it's the Jersey Shore or a rocky Maine coastline or lakes in the Midwest. There's very few places you can live in the world and not have risk. Right. You know, it's not like you, you're choosing between risk and no risk. You're choosing between, you know, rivering flooding, earthquakes, tornadoes, you know, just in continental United States. We have our set of risks. The important thing for us is to be honest about it and address those. I love Miami. I, I've been several times. I love Miami Beach. What does it mean when I come back in 50 years to visit? Am I going to see areas of the city that I used to walk around no longer accessible to me? Or am I just going to be walking on a sidewalk that is now 10 inches higher than it used to be? How does it play out? I think it really will depend on where you are, you know, Mm -hmm. and where you, if you were walking around Brickell, which is our intense area along the Miami River where a lot of commercial retail development is taking place, there'll probably be some kind of structural protection for that area along the bay, which will lessen the impact of the storm surge. I think you will find in in other areas that the homes have been elevated and that you might even have elevated walkways. You can go in downtown Brickell today and there's a, a large project built by Squire Properties who are out of Hong Kong. It's a mall and mixed use project. It's all up level off the street. There's the issue of housing too. Communities are grappling with fortifying flood-prone areas or buying up properties and encouraging residents to move. And Jim says it's not easy. You know, I'm an urban planner, and I've studied these issues a long time. It's just difficult for me to believe the amount of cost to move a community. And, you know, you just don't tell people, today we're telling you to leave because in 50 years your homes are going to be flooded. You know, you have to make decisions that make sense to people who invested in their homes. That's their, you know, that's what they think they're going to retire on and send their kids to college. So you just don't make those kinds of decisions for an entire metropolitan area. Jim says Miami will look different in the future. Infrastructure will move up off ground floors. Mangroves and Everglades will be protected to naturally channel water away from residential areas. And some people will move out of low-lying areas. It won't look the same. Water will find its way into the places where, you know, water always travels. And we will accommodate the water. As I tell people, I'll buy you that steak dinner in 50 years. And it'll be in Miami. I'll take you up on that. Medium rare, please. Up next, preparing for the future.
We have 520 miles of coastline in New York City. That's more than Los Angeles, San Francisco, Miami, and Boston combined. Janie Bavishi is the director of New York City's Office of Resiliency. We expect one to two feet of sea level rise by the 2050s. So we're obviously focused on resiliency of our waterfront, but we're also preparing for extreme heat, which often impacts the most vulnerable residents of our communities, the elderly, chronically disabled, and then also intense precipitation, which also causes flooding like sea level rise and coastal storms, but often in inland communities where people are not as aware of their risk. Is it safe to say that 2012 and Hurricane Sandy was a big wake-up call for the city? Absolutely. Hurricane Sandy was a pivotal moment in our climate action work. The city experienced $19 billion in lost economic activity and damages. 90,000 buildings were flooded. Close to 2 million people were without power for several weeks, and 44 New Yorkers lost their lives. I remember the images. There was water everywhere. And I grew up in New Jersey, spent a lot of time in New York. I can imagine water filling up the streets of places like Rockaway and Manhattan being quite traumatic. But I also think about a city that has so much infrastructure underground, whether it is the basement of a high rise or the iconic subway system. That must have been absolutely catastrophic. That's right. You may have seen images of some of the subway stations being flooded during the storm. And, you know, I think it prompted a lot of work to actually stormproof those subway stations. And certainly the system is is much better off for it. Most cities have to make do with the urban landscape that's there. You can't just level Manhattan and start over. So New York is taking the lessons they learned from Hurricane Sandy and putting that knowledge into practice. So we are building an entirely new class of infrastructure in the form of coastal protection projects, things like flood walls and levees and berms, things to shore up our coastline and try to keep the water out as much as possible, especially during a storm. But we know that that's not going to be possible everywhere. The name of the game in resiliency is redundancy. We want to make sure we have multiple lines of defense so that if one system, for whatever reason, doesn't do what it needs to do, there are other systems in place. We're also upgrading our buildings. For example, we have invested over $3 billion into our public housing infrastructure to make sure that electrical equipment is elevated, that boilers are elevated. But we're also updating our building code. It's not just about any one building. We have a million buildings in New York City. So we want to make sure all future buildings are built with climate impacts in mind. Janie's office is also working with the port and transit authorities and other agencies to protect waste and water systems, utilities, roads, and transportation. How much money are we talking about? What's the budget for all this stuff? That's a long list. Yeah, we're spending over $20 billion right now. And, you know, I would say that that's a down payment. I really think of resiliency as being a process, not an outcome. What that means is that every building and every piece of infrastructure that is built in New York City will be required to consider climate change and its design and construction. Now, that covers new construction in city-funded buildings. But what about existing housing? We know that elevation is not always possible, especially if you're talking about attached homes in New York City. So it can also, you know, involve like backwater valves in homes, you know, that turn on to make sure that you're preventing any backwater flow into a home and preventing basement flooding. It's not just flooding either. It's also measures to protect from extreme heat and keep buildings cool. One of the 
measures we've been using that's been working incredibly effectively is as simple as coating rooftops white with a special reflective coating. It has the impact of keeping building temperatures down. People can stay cool inside their homes without driving up their energy bills. They also have the impact of keeping neighborhood temperatures down. The city has already painted 10 million square feet of rooftops. We have a goal of coating 1 million square feet of rooftops every year. You often forget how big New York is. I mean, it's just massive. The undertaking must be um, overwhelming at times. I'm curious about this idea of barrier protection. Army Corps of Engineers, storm surge barrier five miles long between Rockaway and Sandy Hook. I can't tell if that's a real thing, if that's a, a, a dream. Is that a study? What's going on with that? And, and tell me how real that is. Yeah, it's something that we're evaluating with the Army Corps right now. It's going to be an expensive project, as you might imagine, probably tens of billions of dollars. It would take many decades to build. It would take all kinds of political support to um, get the authorization and the money to build something like that. But we also need to make sure that we understand what the environmental impacts of that kind of infrastructure would be, um, what the residual uh, flood risk might be for communities that are outside of the barrier. Um, so those are the kinds of things that we really want to get our heads around through this study. In the meantime, Janie's office is also working with New York City's 100 waterfront neighborhoods, like one project in the Rockaways. We're going to be building a new dune that's reinforced with steel and concrete. And then we're going to be building new rock jetties that are basically kind of these rock structures that are perpendicular to the beach, and they serve the function of keeping sand in place. And on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, the city recently broke ground on a $1.5 billion project. We're actually raising the park 8 to 10 feet in the air. So we'll be basically be putting new fill um, into the park to be able to raise the park. And then we're building the flood protection, the flood wall, right at the edge of the park, right along the water's edge. So you won't really see the flood wall when you're in the park. So you'll still have waterfront views, but you'll have this new protection. And that's really important to us. You know, we're a waterfront city, so we don't want to wall ourselves off from the water. I don't hear anything about abandonment. You're not expecting Manhattan or any part of New York to empty out, are you? Well, we've created these new zoning designations called special coastal risk districts. And the point is to limit density in these neighborhoods. You know, we know that these neighborhoods are low-lying. They're already vulnerable to tidal flooding. We're not emptying them out per se, but we do believe that limiting density going forward is an important step to keeping them safe. So what does that mean? Everyone gets to stay, but when you move, no one moves back in and eventually the density goes down? Yeah, it just means no new construction essentially. No, no, right. What do you say to the people who don't live anywhere near the coast? And they see on the news every certain number of years these coastal cities getting flooded and then billions of dollars of federal money going in to repair them. I've heard this before. People who don't live near the coast say, stop fixing it. Make them move. What do you say to people who would like folks to get away from the coastline in New York? Because now I know you've got a lot of it, 520 miles. Well, what do you say to the people who are experiencing drought and wildfire in the Midwest? I mean, it's the same issues, right? Like just played out a bit differently. I think climate change is not going to discriminate against non-coastal areas. I think that it's just going to play out in different ways. And I think we just have to 
continue to think about solutions for all these places. I think it's true that we're not going to universally be able to live in all the places that we live now, but we're also going to have to figure out how to adapt in the places that we live now, just because we have a lot invested in those places. What's the future? Go out 50 years, 75 years, 100 years. What does it look like in New York City? What does it look like in those iconic boulevards in Manhattan that so many of us can conjure in our mind? So, so I think our coastline will look very different. I wonder if some of the streets that you're talking about, the boulevards that you're talking about, actually become kind of open streams or, you know, things like that to serve as retention areas for stormwater. After speaking with Janie in New York and Jim in Miami, I had to go back to Anthony Wood. Is it realistic to think that anyone's going to abandon these cities? I mean, we're talking about hundreds of millions of people and remarkable centers of influence for finance, for culture, for education. No one's going to leave New York City. They're not giving it up. We're talking to guys in Miami. They're not retreating. Not one inch. They're going to build a wall. They're going to put a pumping station in. They're going to reinforce their buildings. They may give up a couple low-lying places, pay the homeowners to move, but that's just nibbling around the edges. The honest answer is, I don't know. I don't know, and I doubt it. But the point I'm saying is that I think we do need to think on these levels. It's not resiliency. It's not sustainability. It's far more urgent than that. It's viability. It's not optional anymore. It seems to me that the only thing more certain than storms lashing the coast is that people want to live there. They're not running away. So New York and Miami are test cases for what will work and what won't when it comes to making cities more resilient for the threats they face. Moving infrastructure up off the ground, building storm walls or water drainage, or moving residents out of low-lying areas, those are difficult decisions that take time and money. And no one knows what the future holds, except that if we want to live near the water, then we have to plan. Drop us an email at clearstory@thisoldhouse.com to let us know what you think of this episode and if there's anything else you want us to explore. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Clear Story and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Clear Story was produced for This Old House by Catherine Fenelosa at Rococo Punch. Production support from James Trout, Andrea Suahe, Chris Ermides, and Sarah Chase. And special thanks to our guest, Anthony Wood, Jim Murley, and Janie Bavici. I'm Kevin O'Connor. More next week. Check out the latest This Old House episodes on your local PBS station and on the Roku channel. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube for more from our home improvement experts. Sign up for our email newsletter at thisoldhouse.com.